for May 16th, 2011. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 150, Bacchanal in Baku. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject global popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast of America, Los Angeles, California, the capital of entertainment and pop music and everything, uh, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here with my toe shoes. I bought a pair of Vibram five-finger barefoot shoes this weekend, so my toes are wiggling in their individual little channels, wiggling with excitement at our enormous panel tonight, uh, here to overthink Eurovision and uh, whatever avenues of overthink it leads us down. To, about, of, in, uh, our uh, our Polish contingent, um, our uh, longtime listener uh, Emil sent me a uh, sent me a um, uh, a poem uh, in email called "Don't end a sentence with a poem," uh, and it's it's about it has a whole line made of prepositions. Maybe I'll pull it up and read it later. Thank you for that, Emil. We do listen to the uh, I do read the listener feedback though. None of it ever makes it onto the show. We'll do a listener feedback show, you know, before the end of 2011. If you. The question of the week, if you were to represent an American state in an American version of the uh, Eurovision pop song contest where each state submitted a pop song uh, and they went through some sort of elimination and then, you know, the best ones competed in finals and one winner was crowned. If you were to submit a song, what state would you represent and uh, what would the title of your song be? Joining the podcast uh, after a long, long hiatus, our resident Eurovision expert and first in the alphabet, displacing Fenzel, so drink, uh, it is Uh. Matthew (laughs) Belinky. Hey, everybody. Uh, Glad to be back. Uh, Glad to be able to stop watching Eurovision. Although I'm sort of like, a part of me is glad it's over. Another part of me is like, when do the selections for next year kick off? Uh, to answer your question, there is a place in the United States where four states actually share a border. Uh, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico. So that my idea is that these four states would agree to uh, collaborate on sort of a Flaming Lips-esque experiment where the four songs they would write would actually interlock if they were played together to form like a mashup. So that I think the four, the four songs would be called uh, Northwest, Northeast, Southwest, and Southeast. And they could be about anything, but the idea is that they should be composed in a way that when they're played together, they sort of reveal new melodic and harmonic awesomeness. And it would just sort of show this, this is it the Midwest? It's not really the Midwest. I think it's the, the straight up West. It would show this sort it's of Western Southwest. union, as it were. I don't know if Utah's Southwest. I guess whatever. You know what? Whatever part of the United States it is, it would show how awesome that part of the United States is if they could pull it off. It would also give me an excuse to like uh, get out the four CD players so I could do Zyrica again. Explain to people what Zyrica is, because Zyrica is an awesome knows. Flaming Lips album from I believe it was 1997, where the Flaming Lips 
is that they've had some mainstream pop hits, but they have an experimental indie edge to them. And uh, early on in their career, they tried something where they would literally record uh, 40 different versions of a track to be played in 40 car stereos uh, uh, parked in a parking lot at once so that it would form sort of a soundscape that you could walk through. And depending on where you were, you'd get a different experience. And eventually, as was was shown, as was demonstrated on their appearance in the original run of Beverly Hills 90210, right? Is that true? No, no. Sorry. Partially, partially true. Not true at all. Okay, so in 1997, they released this album, which came on four CDs, and the four CDs were meant to be played uh, by four CD players in different parts of the room. And that the idea is, at the beginning of each of the tracks, there'd be a count-off, and you were supposed to attempt to pause each CD player on one and then to push play at the same time. But of course they knew that there was no way to do it with 100% accuracy. And even if you did, CD players actually play slightly off, you know, like they would, they would get uh, out of phase by just milliseconds by the end of each track. And so the idea was that like, they would sound like they were almost in sync, but not quite. And of course, depending on where you are in the room, you get a different experience. So, it was sort of an album and sort of a excuse to get high and sit alone in the dark room. Um, but in, in either case, it succeeds. Excellent. Yeah, that that uh, every experience is different. Of, of yeah, Zyrica, exactly. I guess. It was. I mean, I believe that the liner note said that it was an attempt to recreate some of the spontaneity and and one offedness of a live performance in a uh, recorded medium so that like although the cd was always going to be the same your your performance of the cd would uh, ne- never be the same so that the anyway the the idea is that the uh, that four states could either you do a song that stands on its own but it also sort of is part of a larger whole it's sort of like a transformer uh rather the constructicons that like they could be individual robots the the um tractor or the head, yeah, the, the Steve Shover, or whatever it is, could turn into a robot. But it could also be an arm of a much more awesome robot and a much more expensive robot that your parents would never give you for Hanukkah, no matter how many times you ask them. <laughs> it seems like it seems like a purpose-built gift for Hanukkah because you know there are, there are several nights of gift giving, each of which devoted could be devoted to one part of the robot. Yeah, although if your parents really wanted to be cruel, they could give you almost all the parts, and then for like the eighth night of Hanukkah, give you like a pair of socks. <laughs> And you could spend the one year without uh, the headless robot, <laughs> the loneliest robot would sit alone without his head. Uh, it's, like, it's like some indie film waiting to happen. Well, it's very good to have you back on the show, Matt. Next in the alphabet, uh, he's angry because he's been displaced, uh, but he's happy because he's on vacation in Puerto Rico. It is Peter Fenzel by cell phone. Hey. So, all right, awesome. So, uh, unlike Matt, I'm actually going to try to win Eurovision by <laughs> giving people what they want. Uh, so, strategically, I would want to pick a state that's part of a region that has a lot of states with relatively low population density so that I can get uh, a disproportionate number of votes if the voting system works the same way that it does in Eurovision. So, I'd probably pick, uh, again, this is, of course, a strategy that you see in electoral politics when the electoral college is involved as well. Another way that winning Eurovision is like being president of the United States. Uh, so I would, I would pick, I think, I think Wyoming or maybe Idaho. No, I think, I think I would pick, I think I would pick Idaho. Um, and because it's like far enough away that nobody would have expectations about the kind of song I'm supposed to produce. And, and I can let the country music states like fight amongst each other with traditional country songs. And then like when they all lose, they can all vote for me. 
because I'll be the last one standing. And I'm going to pick, uh, as, as is often the case in Eurovision, a, an absurd fusion song that combines a variety of musical genres. So I'm envisioning that it'll be called uh, Ragtime Stampede. Right, and it's all about a ragtime piano player who has to use his piano to stop a horde of cattle from overrunning a small town. Let's just say it's a small New England town, right? So we combine as many different regions in the song as possible. So it's like a ragtime piano in a real New Orleans style, and uh, and there's a bunch of cows and there's some some twanging going on just as a fan service, and they're going to stampede some small town in like Vermont unless like the ragtime piano player can play the ragtime piano well enough. At that point, it basically becomes a devil went down to Georgia ripoff with uh, except cows are the final judgment rather than Satan. Um, which is sort of how I feel whenever I'm called upon to order a hamburger. It's sort of like the devil, is the devil going to win this time or not, right? Because, you know, cows and Satan have this tempting deliciousness to them. Uh, <laughs> at any rate, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that that's some of the stuff that I love about Eurovision. I love the fusion. I love the strategery. Um, and, I, and I love how uh, I wouldn't want to make a song that I felt like people would actually want to listen to outside of the context of it being in Eurovision because those songs never seem to win ever. So, so that's what I would say. Uh, that's uh, that's how I do it. And we'd wear ridiculous hats, and that would make it all worthwhile. Absolutely, excellent. Uh, moving on in the alphabet, Joshua McNeil. Right. So my original idea was uh, was California Voy Ie, which is just the Gypsy King Spanish cover of California Here I Come, because I think that could appeal to a large demographic there and throughout the Southwest. Um, but instead, I'm going to go with Arizona, where uh, there's recently been a bill introduced in the legislature to allow for urban hunting. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what the song is, but I do feel like a Eurovision-style video of urban hunting is something that I'd very much like to see. <laughs> well, I think representing California is a fool of errand because you can't vote for yourself. So if you have tons of people watching from California, you can't get any votes from those people. Although I guess it's not proportionally represented by individuals, right? But that's why it's so hard for big countries to win Eurovision, even though Germany did it last year. is because, like, the people watching the show, they have to vote for other countries. So the small country next to a big country, or a small country supported by, like, the diaspora of another country, as is the case with Azerbaijan, has a better chance mathematically than a country that actually has a lot of people. Yeah. So is um, the Midwest sort of like the, the Balkans of America? That There's, like, a lot of small I mean, states... In, in- population in so many ways <laughs> in, in, in I mean, ways it is referred not, to not as the belt. <laughs> i mean i mean if you go to the iowa midwest you have to go sort of west of wisconsin and and uh and illinois right and then once you're into like north dakota south dakota iowa wyoming i mean there's a reason why there's so much money and power and politics involved in those places that's related to government and it's because they're very they're, they're like they're like good monopoly squares to own they're like good investments they're like illinois avenue it's like you want to land on it because that's the that's the one that's going to give you mathematically the best chance of getting your rent even though it's not the best rent in itself you just look at an electoral map pretty much um the people who spend their money wisely go for the smaller states mm. Uh, who no, uh, Parrish, John Parrish next in the alphabet. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Hello. So bear in mind, I come to this with an almost complete ignorance of Eurovision, but from what little I've been able to parse out, I'm going to say that Alaska has the key to producing the best Eurovision song or best Eurovision video. If for no other reason than as a state, it contains probably the broadest range of natural vistas. It's got, you know, snow-capped mountains, majestic forests, rocky coasts, nice coasts, probably some swamps in there or something. And if 
if, if what little I know of Eurovision is any indication, the key to a good Eurovision video is having, you know, sweeping panoramic vistas off of which someone can stare moodily or serenade romantically or glower or something along those lines. So for for sheer music video value alone, Alaska, I think, has the key. Now, for the actual live performance, I don't know if that'll back up, so maybe they'll just make it to the semifinals and then be be graciously uh, asked to leave. But Alaska, I think, strong contender. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Schechner, Dr. David, Sh- paging Dr. David Schechner. What, 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 what's, what's going on? Dave, uh, we need hey. you to represent an American state. Oh, God. Whatever state it is is doomed. Um, okay, so uh, I've been thinking about this uh, in the long time that occurs in the alphabet before tell, my name. Tell me, tell me it's called, tell me the, the song is called Lawn Guy Land. Yes, sweet God. No, I, I don't want anyone in the world to know about Long Island, let alone the fact that I spent 18 miserable years of my life there. Uh, and I'm forced to go back there to visit my family, who for some reason really like the place. No, you know, so... Um, I was sort of going to go uh, like a comedy of inversion aspect on it and, and say that, you know, and I hope we talk about this in the podcast, is that like Eurovision itself is this bizarre effort for the European countries to at the same time embody their own native culture, but also to kind of wander towards and, and partially co-opt the predominant exported culture that's popular in Europe, which is largely derivative of American culture, right? Like, hence why all of these songs are done in English. Uh, it just, it garners immediate popularity because it sort of arrives at this common um, cultural point that everyone really likes. And so, um, to sort of invert it, you know, I, I think like any, any state entering a Merovision should have to somehow emulate a, a cultural context that's popular in Europe at the time, while at the same time also calling upon like obscure bits of trivia about their own history uh, so that they can still represent like their native cred and do it in as like glossed over um, an absorption amalgam as they can possibly muster. So I was going to go with, um, I was going to go straight up the middle and go with like the most obvious slogan for a song that you could do. It's called uh, Don't Mess With Texas. Uh, and it, it sort of highlights their uh, their rich cultural history of various flavors of um, ethnocentrism. So you've got a um, you know small mariachi band, and you've got uh, lyrics that are mostly about how the Alamo is about uh, people trying to defend their right to own and keep slaves. Uh, and then every now and then you'll sprinkle in bits of trivia about the Gadsden Purchase. And, and this is all done in a um, you know sort of like let's say British uh, post-punk new wave style. Uh, that's what I'm looking for. Excellent. And uh, I think I am last in the alphabet. And my, um, uh, based on the voting system, my, my uh, song is, there, there are three states, I think, that I can think of at the moment uh, that have something that they call the panhandle. And um, two of the states huh. are uh, Texas and Florida, uh, which are respectively the second and fourth most populous states in the union. Um, the third is Oklahoma. So I'm going to... Uh, isn't it? Yes, Oklahoma. I'm going to uh, go from Oklahoma and uh, have a song called Panhandle, which uh, describes life on the Panhandle, driving cattle across the Panhandle, or you know some such. Um, and it's going to uh, uh, it's going to contain no references to any specific uh, geography other than Panhandle. Uh, the idea is that it's a shameless play for votes from uh, Texas and Florida, and uh, you know. It's, uh, I'm, you know, I'm thinking that it's, um, it, that it kind of sounds like sledgehammer. It's actually like panhandle, sledgehammer. Doesn't, 
You know? Doesn't California have something of a panhandle too? Like, wouldn't isn't that Baja kind of? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's more sort of like dribble down the side of the pan. Right? Yeah, that's, that's like the the flaccid, <laughs> the, 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 the overflow from the, the nation or something. Oh, sorry, was that not PG thirteen? Like you know, both um, both Maryland and Massachusetts have pretty substantial panhandles too. I'd say, like, most of the area of Massachusetts is an enormous panhandle. You don't have to come out and say it. I mean, we're working on it, okay? We've got to go, you know, go to the gym. We really let ourselves go up here in the MA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, we are into, uh, we are into Eurovision. So, Belinky, uh, explain to us how it, how it came out, where this is in lieu of a wrap-up post uh, on Eurovision. Um, who, who won Eurovision? Uh, who came in second and third? And uh, what does that say about, you know, the perilous state of global democracy? Well, it's interesting that the voting is half... Okay, it's, it's halfway determined by the voting of individual countries that uh, everybody in a country gets to vote. The country that gets the most votes from that country gets 12 points. The uh, second place in that particular country gets 10 points and then nine points, eight points. And so the, the top, um, what did I just say? Yeah. The top 10 countries of each country get point. Wow. I'm explaining it in the most complicated way possible, but basically you get points from each country that votes, including the countries that didn't make the finals. So all 43 participating countries from Eurovision, but then each country, all 43 have a jury as well, uh, that's sent to the Eurovision that, that votes, um, and and not determined by popular voting, because the idea is that in the past, uh, block voting has really uh, skewed things in a really obvious way, meaning that countries tend to vote for other countries with a similar ethnic or political background, meaning that uh, former Soviet bloc countries really tend to prop each other up, uh, sort of like Norwegian, Scandinavian countries tend to vote for each other. Uh, and it really skews things against the sort of Western European countries, which even when their songs are pretty good, nobody else is voting for the UK besides the UK, which of course can't vote for the UK. Um, and so that the jury is supposed to skew this. This is by way of saying that I feel like the voting comes out a little wonky because it's basically two different contests grafted on top of each other. There's a jury contest and then there's also popular voting. And it's, it's, I don't think we have the information about how to decipher those two, or at least I don't here on this Wikipedia page. Uh, anyway, here's how the results came down. Azerbaijan was actually first, which of course is not technically part of Europe but is in the European Broadcasting Union, so it participates in Eurovision, which means that uh, next year the contest will be held in uh, Baku, I believe. Uh, should be very interesting. Uh, God help two- us. <laughs> yeah. That's going to be a fun destination for everybody to schlep off to, like scenic <laughs> Azerbaijan, as long as there's not more like ethnic warfare going on or any more oil pipeline shenanigans. But It's going to be crazy. And, and I mean, another thing is that like Eurovision is also sort of like a, like a, a, a gay tourist destination uh, for all of Europe that, you know, every year it's like a giant – um, I'm trying to think of a word that means orgy, but is like a little more artsy than orgy. So I'm just going to say orgy. Fantasia. I use the word yeah. Fantasia when it's it was. A yeah. Giant Fantasia. A, a, um, a giant, a giant bacchanal, if you will. Yeah, it's a bacchanal uh, in Baku in this case. <laughs> um, so that should be interesting. So Azerbaijan <laughs> number two, and I thought this was. So here's the deal. Azerbaijan had this um, very sort of like sickeningly sweet duet. Um, where you know the the two of them are staring into each other's eyes and singing these overwrought, poorly translated lyrics, and I was thinking that like okay, 
uh, it might not be like the most fun song, but I could see um, I, I could see how like it sort of fills a niche that if you're looking for a romantic song, if you happen to like duets, maybe this pulls in a larger share of the votes. Whereas that like if you want more of like a, a modern sounding pop song by like a dude, Russia and Sweden are splitting that vote. If you want more of like a kitty pop song, uh, the UK and Ireland are splitting that vote. Um, but then number two actually turned out to be Italy. And Italy is interesting. It um, has not actually been in Eurovision since 1997, and this is its triumphant return. And I sort of thought that they were kind of phoning it in because um, their entry is like a, kind of a straightforward jazz number. I mean, not not like a jazz jazz, but sort of a cabaret-style jazz number where the singer actually sits at the piano the whole time and plays this sort of like, you know, jazzy Candor uh, um, and Ebb-style piano number. And I sort of figured it's like, well, this is kind of artsy, but it's not going to win. Turns out to get second place and came pretty close to winning. So I don't really know what that means in terms of winning. Maybe there's a lot of Italians scattered throughout Europe. Uh, Maybe people in Europe just like jazz more than Americans. Um, And then number three is sort of a, a, a song that... Uh, we all sort of expected to be a top contender, which is Sweden. Sweden, always a Eurovision powerhouse. And in fact, uh, Swedish songwriters actually wrote the Azerbaijani entry, which it seems to me that they should lose their Swedish citizenship by basically defecting to the enemy and helping them win Eurovision. But, I mean, songwriting is basically one of Sweden's main exports at this point. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's actually a bill uh, you know, on the floor of the Swedish legislature right now, so we, we shouldn't make jokes. Um, yeah, so they, they had a, um, a song called Popular, which P pointed out was like almost a little overcompensating or a little on the nose, which is a song how the lyrics are like, I will be popular, I will be popular, I will be very, very popular, something along those lines. <laughs> um, and they were pretty popular. Um, and so those are the top three um, and it's interesting. I don't really know what, and, and I, I do have to say that it's not just me that's a little flummoxed, that there was, in fact, uh, a lot of bookmaking for Eurovision. There's a lot of betting going on. And those were not the favorite songs that really people thought it was going to come between France, uh, which had a very sort of like uh, artsy, uh, sort of light opera number in Corsican. Um, and then uh, Ireland, which had Jedward, which is the opposite, which is the sort of like kitty pop uh, by these identical twins that that sort of want to be the identical twin version of Lady Gaga. It turned out Ireland came in eighth, and France came in fifteenth out of twenty five. So that the bookies were way off. I don't know what it means, but uh, it was sort of a surprising Eurovision. Well, it means that America has better bookmakers than Europe. Yeah, I suppose. If there was if there was a competition of bookmaking, Europe would have lost. Now, when you're doing bookmaking like that, though, is it proportional to the likelihood of the event happening, or is it proportional to the money that's coming in in bets? Like, I've, always, I've often wondered that. Like, are you is the is the line a really good indicator? Is the the degree to which a betting line is a good indicator of the outcome of an of an event? Because the people who are betting on it collectively represent sort of an intelligent view of what might be happening in the event, or is it that the bookmakers are judging the event on its own merits, right? And then, like, so, like, um, are you, are you, uh, if you make books for uh, college football games, do you know a lot about college football, or do you know a lot about like what people are betting on in college football? 
I've it's, never run numbers or anything like that. Sort of, sort presumably of, both, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of both. Caveat, you know, once again, on the advice of your podcaster, betting on college football is illegal in most, uh, most of America and probably most of Europe, too, so please don't do it. That said, <clears throat> that said when someone makes book on a college football game, uh, the, the line, as in, you know, between you know, two teams, you know, one's going to win, one's going to lose. So what happens is you'll, you'll be given a, a line. You know, the prediction is that, you know, Army beats Navy by six and a half points, let's say. So that six and a half points is calculated by the bookies in order to generate the most possible money being wagered on the game. So if there's one team that's, that's an absolute guaranteed blowout, that's, that's absolutely guaranteed to, to knock another team out of the park, then they're going to set the line pretty high So in order to cr- encourage people to bet on the game at all. So because, you know, if it's, if it's otherwise a complete shutout, no one's going to wager, the bookies don't make any money, etc. So if there's... If there's any sort of similar intelligence being applied to Eurovision, then I would imagine the line is set in such a way so as to encourage people to wager money on it. So, you know, teams teams that, or rather countries, I should say, that everyone expects to win, like France and Ireland, probably have fairly low odds set on them to encourage a lot of money being brought in, money which has now been lost to those wagering people. So maybe the bookmakers of Europe know more than we think they do. Sorry, guys, please don't break my knees. And, you know, relative outsiders like Azerbaijan and, you know, Azerbaijan get to mm. skate by to the finals. Of course, we also see a situation where the bookmakers have, like, the favorite odds on these particular acts that finish really badly, and then Italy comes in second. That's a little bit curious. <laughs> I would aspire to that sort of appeal, that sort of ethnic stereotype <laughs> yeah. about who the bookmakers are in the situation. <laughs> hey, guys, <laughs> but, just, uh, just to let you know that... um. That I'm, I'm looking at the website www.eurovisionodds.co.uk, which is you know is currently showing the last odds before uh, the contest, and that Azerbaijan actually was the sort of third ranked country with uh, eight to one odds, but then Italy, which came in second, had 151 to one odds, was actually favored to come in 23rd out of 25. So something was way off. I mean, is that is um, that you think just because they haven't been in it for a while? I mean, you know, I mean, 14 I, years I, I guess, but it's also like I, I sort of wonder if what should have been like a, like a uh, what what fool thinks that like a 14 year hiatus is enough to make the entire nation of Italy incapable of writing the song. Like, but I mean, Italy. it's not like, but here's the thing, like the songs were known going into the competition. And in fact, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that a lot of these odds are based on how much the songs have been watched on YouTube. You would figure that's a pretty good bet. Like all these songs were posted on YouTube for at least a month, in most cases, two or three months beforehand, had hundreds of thousands of hits. And you could sort of tell that if a song had half a million hits or more, maybe it was getting some real buzz. And if a song from a nation only had like, you know, less than a hundred thousand hits, probably was wasn't going to do well or even get out of the semifinals. But obviously, um, something happens. Now, is there a runoff during the finals where they go, they break down? Because the finals are what, like start with 25 songs? And then yeah, the finals start with 25. They, yeah. And then, I mean, honestly, from what I could tell, the, the Eurovision broadcast was about like, I think, three and a half hours total. I was watching the whole thing, and they got all the songs done within 
two hours. Like they really cruise through it. No commercial breaks because in most cases these are public television stations because we're talking about the socialist paradise that is Europe. Um, and then there was like the voting, the votes coming in took almost as long as the performance of the songs. That literally they had a process where they had a representative from every country appear like live on a jumbotron at the at the arena and award the points and be like, you know, all right, you know, Ireland awards 12 points to Serbia. And then everyone would cheer and then like 10 points to France and everyone would cheer. Um, and you know, this, this ended up taking another, and then of course it gets exciting because maybe one country is ahead. And then as you like introduce, uh, another country's vote, suddenly everything changes. I think for a while, Sweden was ahead and then Azerbaijan like took the lead and never gave it up. Um, Matt, qu- question for you. Mm-hmm. So you say, like, you know, they, they announced points for France and everyone cheered. Was there, like, a villain? Was there, like, a was there a country that everyone was rooting against? I mean, I would say that Jedward was maybe the most polarizing artist that, like, I mean, if you haven't seen this song, I mean, they are really... I don't know. I don't know if cutesy is the word for it, but I mean, they're, they're, they're 20-year-old identical twins that dress in ridiculous outfits and perform these sort of like bubblegum pop arrangements, which I, I mean, I think are a lot of fun, but a lot of people, for instance, our uh, European uh, voting proxy on this, Timothy Swan, uh, made it clear before we uh, gave him our choices that the one group he refused to vote for was Jedward. Uh, partially because I think living in the UK, you are exposed to a lot of Jedward on uh, the last season of X Factor. So that, like, you know, people huh. have either fallen in love with them or vowed to. I don't know. I'm trying to think of, like, a, like a similar US group that, like, people either love or hate. I guess they're. I mean, if you think like, about, like, in, like, the Backstreet Boys during the height of their popularity, maybe, or, like. Or the Jonas um, Brothers? Yeah, I, yeah, or Hanson, yeah, Hansen, yeah like their, their appeal maybe skews really young, so that like although they actually were favored up to the last minute, and then then ended up coming in um, coming in eighth overall, that like I think a lot of people were were in the anyone but Jedward category. Okay, so right. I so I have a question while we're while we're talking voting, why twelve points? I mean, I guess I I think it's because. Uh, there are ten. There are ten countries overall that receive votes from every voting country. I'm trying to think of a clearer way to explain this, and I think the deal is that they want coming in first or second to be more advantageous than um, to have a little extra advantage, so that you get uh, two extra points for coming in second, and two extra points for coming in first. So you get twelve points for first, ten points for second, and then. Nine points for third, fourth, and then down. I don't. I don't know what I just said. I feel like it. It. It ends up being right. I mean, the short answer is I think you have to be European to understand it. Um, I also am not quite sure how the the juries work. Um, like you know, if there are any, if the juries award, I guess the juries award points, but I don't know well, if the I've points been, are factored in. I've been I've been researching Eurovision voting since we started. Hopefully, okay, an answer for this question. And according to Eurovision TV's uh, post on on May twenty fourth, two thousand ten, which I think was the first year, the first year that they had jury vote, or the second year maybe that they had jury voting. The explanation is all right. So in each country, the results of the viewers and the judges will be combined, and each country then gives either one through eight, ten, or twelve points as right, each. Okay. So you get so, like two extra points for coming in first or second. 
So I guess uh, I'm not sure. It doesn't really explain how the results of the viewers and the judges are combined. So right. I guess I if, think that's the key. If 70 million Hungarians plus the Hungarian jurist all vote for the same country, how many points is that worth? I I don't I don't know. I mean, I think it's sort of factored in behind the scenes, and all that matters is the country that comes in first, and Hungary gets 12. Um, Personally, I'm inclined to write this all off as a parliamentary system and ignore it, as we often do the parliamentary system. (laughs) (laughs) But the American and you should love that they count by 12 rather than by 10, because that's easily divisible, like the customary system is. Like, sane people who measure inches rather than centimeters. (laughs) It's it's a little needlessly confusing. All I know is that if you go to the YouTube videos of any of these songs, like a lot of the comments are like, "Great job, twelve points for Macedonia," like you know, "Wonderful voice, Kreese give you twelve points," which is like what you write if you're from a European country and you want to express great admiration for another European country's Eurovision entry. I think that like, should become all let, over the place. Let, yeah, that should be just our, like. Like many of our uh, weird uh, locutions on overthinking it, I think that should become one that we do. Would it be like, from, from oh, like oh, nice, States, oh, nice, nice one, rather. Twelve points from Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, except except I meant like really supportive of one another and not you know sarcastic. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I pulled a, oh, pull a Jedward, didn't I? I just pulled a Jedward, didn't I? It was your it was your evil identical <laughs> twin. <laughs> All right, so so I think I think it seems <laughs> fair to guess that Italy benefited from jury so from jury points because the Italian song is like a really good song. I thought I thought I mean I listened to all of these songs multiple times during our Eurovision build-up. I didn't watch the actual finals um, because I was traveling, but um, but all of the of watching all the individual songs, the Italian song is a really good song. It's well put together. It has a lot of musical virtuosity. It's sort of mature. It's for adults. Um, and, and so I can see why a lot of jury people would vote for it. That, that kind of makes sense. But let me, let me ask you this, Matt, and this is something that I think several of us on the call, maybe not everybody on the call is on the same page about. What country should have won Eurovision? That's a tough call. I, I had said before uh, the contest in my sort of final plea to Timothy Swan that I was kind of at, at a soft spot for Switzerland, which, by the way, came in 25 out of 25. Uh, at least they Aww. made the finals, but um, <laughs> I mean, like, I never expected them to win because the whole thing is like the Switzerland song is sort of like uh, cutesy and sweet instead of like you know being sort of like epic and and stadium rocking. As it, it was the wrong song for a venue that sat thirty thousand people. Um, yeah, but so was the Azerbaijan song, though. The sweet, the Switzerland song was like the same as the Azerbaijan song, but better. That was the part that I didn't get about that. You know, I have a theory about the Azerbaijans. I was watching this with um, my five-year-old son, and in a way, like I kind of feel like a five-year-old provides you with a little insight into the mindset of a large crowd. <laughs> and and like I asked him what he thought about all the songs afterwards, and of the Azerbaijan song, he was like, "There are two people, and they sang super dramatic about love, and then fire fell behind them." Which was true. If you would watch the song, it was like after the sort of quiet part in the bridge, when they busted into the last chorus, they had like a pyrotechnic effect where these dramatic showers of sparks sort of fell in a curtain behind them. And they were dramatically sort of silhouetted, staring into each other's eyes in front of this like curtain of like shimmering sparks. And Oliver thought that was pretty. He actually said, like, as they were singing, he's like, they have to be careful of that fire on the stage. And I kind of feel like maybe Europe was like, ooh, fire. And they gave it an extra few points. 
Well, well, speaking of, of the need to be careful, I just took a look at the at the Sweden entry, popular, just before jumping on the podcast, and the 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 lead singer who I unfortunately closed out of the the window a little Eric too Stad. fast. Yeah. Eric Stad, thank you, Eric. Is it yep. Stad or Stad? Oh, I don't know. I just call him I'm, Eric Marquis I'm de gonna, Stad. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Gstad because that's that's in Sweden, right? That's. Well, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm making things up now. Uh, no, Gestad is actually in Switzerland. I'm completely wrong. But anyhow, uh, Eric Stad. So in that video, at the, uh, at the live performance, anyway, he's enclosed in this glass cage, which then explodes around him. Like each of the panels of glass. Yeah, the glass actually breaks in the live performance. Which, you can, which he sort of throws his hand out like he's doing a Michael Jackson, you know, projecting bursts of invisible energy, but then sort of sells it short at the last minute to wisely cover his face from the exploding safety glass. <laughs> so per, perhaps that, that little conceit to, to personal safety is what cost him the first place votes in the end, whereas Azerbaijan, uh, Eldar and Nygar, I believe their names are, were... <laughs> Although they, they go by El and Nikki, which is sort of their cuter Western European nicknames. Well, that's that's fair. Yeah, but, but but Eldar and Nygar were willing to embrace the fire, as it were, and and that got them the the extra little little hump over the over the line to get those those twelve points. Yeah, I do have to say that if you want to go to Eurovision.tv, they have the live stream of the final um, the final performances that you can see there. And there was like a lot of very neat stagecraft that they had a really cool setup where there was like a main stage, but there was also like a raised uh, pathway that went all the way through the audience onto like a a sub stage right in the middle of the uh, the auditorium. There was like a very very large screen that stretched like you know a hundred feet behind all the performers that was playing video and. And, and you know pre-done graphics there was pyrotechnics that that you know every group had their own little uh lighting tricks and you know they they really they they really pull out all the all the stops and it was a lot of fun to watch even if you weren't sold on the song there might have been something really cool visually that they that they were pulling off uh so it's it is a lot of fun to sort of scan through the broadcast and to just see the various numbers and how they were all presented Okay, now I have a, I have a question about about the since we're talking about songs, I, I know we've talked a lot about the the qualities of each particular song on the the website over the past week, but I have a I have a question about Sweden in particular, his song "Popular." Now, obviously, just listening to it in straight up English, it sounds like an oddly shallow song. It's about a guy who wants a girl, and he's convinced that oh, if only I can become popular, I'll get this girl, and then you know the usual great romantic things will happen. And the chorus is as as was said already, just him chanting over and over, "I will be popular, I will be popular." And you know, so on one reading, it's kind of shallow, but on another reading, I wanna I wanna take a look at this now. The, the rest of this po- the rest of the podcasters are are much more musically talented than I am. So I'll I'll ask you guys first. Popular sung kind of in a in a minor key, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Good. So I, I got that right. Excellent. All right. Yeah. So we can keep we can keep okay. going. Keep going. So, so one of the things I actually noticed this at karaoke a couple of months ago when a, a friend of mine was singing "Fame" from the the movie and the TV series "Fame," which is which is a similarly shallow si- uh, sounding song about you know how I'm going to live forever, how being you know young and popular and talented is going to confer immortality on me, and 
grant me with these godlike powers, and, quote, people will see me and die, close quote. So, which, which also sounds similarly shallow, except, and I point this out, for the fact that it's in a minor key. And that gives it this whole tragic aspect, this whole disbelieving, bittersweetness that I think really turns the song on its heel. If it were written in a major key, if it were, you know, really peppy and upbeat and enthusiastic, it would be a sort of Nietzschean anthem of shallowness. Whereas in this minor key, there, there seems to be this ironic undercurrent of, no, you're not actually going to live forever. No, you're not actually going to be famous after the movie Fame has faded from theaters, which was in fact the case. I mean, name one member of that cast today. And I think there's a similar, I wonder, is there a similar thing going on with Popular, with Eric Saad? Is he, is he throwing a sort of, iro- or rather the people who wrote the song for him, throwing a sort of ironic twist at him, especially especially given the fact that he performs live in this very obvious Michael Jackson-style getup with the red leather jacket and the one glove and the, the choreographed dance moves. That there's sort of like a dramatic irony written into the song because he is, in a way, like like the song is a desperation to it that's sort of like reflected in the in, in this sort of like, you know, booming minor chords and the fact that like the the singer is clearly literally wearing the clothes of a much greater artist than he can ever be yeah there's there's that i mean that has to be that has to be deliberate no one accidentally puts on a red leather jacket and one glove unless you know they're in the middle of getting dressed and they go put on a second glove a few minutes later but So that has to be deliberate, and that sort of juxtaposition, I wonder, especially from the Swedes, who, for all I know, are great at irony, ha- has to be evoking that sort of thing, doesn't it? Does, does anyone else well, get that impression? The, or do they mean well, it with I think, a straight face? One of, one of the, I mean, uh, it's been, by all means, jump in here, but I think one of the present, like, you know, sort of artistic presences that hangs over uh, Eric Saad's work uh, and I think um, the, the Matt, the, the the reader who wrote into you with her opinions of Eurovision, identified this as well. Uh-huh. Is that Eric Sod is very influenced by Justin Timberlake, uh-huh. and, and Justin Timberlake's mature work does a, moves a lot more in that direction, where he's talking, he sings about irony. He doesn't sing about irony, but he sings sort of like the ironic side of the same sort of love themes that he sung about more sincerely and earnestly, not sincerely, but earnestly when he was in, in sync, right? So like in sync, you have like, you know, bye, oh, uh, bye, bye, bye. And then, then, then when you have Justin Timberlake on, your health, your, on his own, you have like Crimea River, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, it was a very different tone sort of song. So I, I definitely have heard, I mean, I see Eric Sade as sort of like the Swedish Zac Efron after a fashion, at least in terms of how he's styled, but in his music, there definitely seems to be a note of Justin Timberlake, but I'm not sure that it's like sort of like self-consciously, uh, it's not, a, not necessarily a self-conscious note, it's perhaps a borrowing. Like maybe it's trying to be like Justin Timberlake because of a slightly misguided perception of what Justin Timberlake's work is about, right? Because like, like, seeing him as sort of like a pop idol, which is not how his solo music really seems to identify him, right? Because he's sort of, you know, when he thinks about pop, and it's not necessarily him sort of really earnestly participating in this thing. It's he's sort of recognizing a structure and a kind of construct and creating it, yes, but sort of like recognizing the act of creation in kind of a bittersweet kind of way, too, that sort of diminishes it as this sort of transcendent thing. Um, like Four Minutes to Save the World uh, with Madonna is another song like that, where it's sort of like, let's talk about the project that we're endeavoring upon. So I guess that song is kind of like popular, too. So I mean, that's where I would identify the song. That's where I'd locate the song. Yeah, I would locate it with like Justin Timberlake work. Um, 
Although it is interesting that stuff like fame, and I'm thinking about chorus line especially, really hits a lot of those notes, a lot of those, those uh, themes uh, about kind of um, you know young people, performing people, people who want all the adulation, but but the sort of bittersweetness that comes with with uh, confronting the realities that will come after, even when you confront them in the moment through other sort of transliteration. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, it, honestly. Sweden was not one of my favorite songs in the competition. That honestly, songs that I ended up liking a lot more and sort of rooting for. Uh, I thought Russia had a very strong song that was a little like the Sweden song in the sort of like pop stylings, but I think superior. Uh, the Russian song was actually written by uh, a guy known as Red One, who is uh, more famous in the industry for writing all of Lady Gaga's early stuff, wrote uh, Bad Romance and uh, Poker Face. So it's got that similar level of slickness. Uh, I thought the Romania song, which sounded like a lot like a show tune, was like a, you know, with like a horn section, was a lot of fun. Uh, what else did I like? I kind of liked Hungary, which, which sounded a lot like a Celine Dion song, almost to the point where like I almost felt like it was probably ripping off a Celine Dion song I couldn't quite put my finger on. Um, so, I mean, the Sweden song was, was okay, but I thought that like if you like songs like that, there were other songs that you might have liked more. So I was a little curious to see it come out on top. Look, we really got to mention Moldova, though. I yeah, mean, I'm it's sorry. Just me and Jordan, and, but Moldova was such a great song. And guys, did did you did anyone besides me actually see the performance that Moldova did? Uh, the costumes specifically. I mean, I saw them for the semifinals. They wear the same costumes in the final with the giant did, conical hats. Of the yes, they wore they wore <laughs> giant uh, con. I can only describe them as like a uh, uh, awesome dunce cap caps. They were like four feet tall. Um, that I mean, I think they were going for like a sort of like a circus type uh, theme, and that they uh, yeah. had a um, they had like it, a it, backup it, dancer on a unicycle. Yeah, it's like a bunch of lawn gnomes formed like a late nineties neo swing mm-hmm. band. So it's like uh, if somebody made a like a like a cherry pop and daddy's cover band entirely out of lawn gnomes. That's the the style. <laughs> Yeah, that song rocks so wonderfully. I love that song so much. I, I feel like the the Moldova song, what I ended up really respecting about it is that I've I've sort of uh, posited a concept called irony on the uh, overthinking it before, where basically it's sort of like simultaneously um, being sarcastic and mocking something, but at the same time enjoying it on a very genuine and sincere level. And I feel like like that was a very ironic song in that they were kind of like winking at like the the circus that is Eurovision, but at the same time they were legitimately rocking hard and and they, they succeeded in rocking hard. So it was both like a parody of a Eurovision song and also a very good one. How did they do in the final calculus? They did like not as bad as you would expect. Um, <laughs> well, they, they did well the last time they were in Eurovision. The same group was in Eurovision in 2005 and came in like fifth or sixth place. Hold on. Uh, g- give me a second. I'm going to call up that information. <laughs> the song is called So Lucky, by the way. And it's all about like living high on the hog as a Moldavian rock star, I suppose. Um, in much the same way as like uh, 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 a uh, like uh, Three Six Mafia song or the song Like a G6. is about like all the things that you do, right? Like I'm drinking whiskey and I'm going to all the great parties. And, except it's like this weird Moldavian punk fusion song uh, with the unicyclist and crazy gnome hats and, and, yeah. a, and a clarinet solo in the middle where the guy doesn't put down his trombone before playing the clarinet solo, which is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> By the way, they ended up coming in 12 out of 25, which puts okay. them ahead of uh, like Fran-
France, which was favored to win, and Russia, which had the Lady Gaga song. Uh, mm-hmm. So that, like, you know, I think they have a lot to be proud of. That's awesome. That's excellent, especially for such a small country. That's definitely yeah. true. There's actually, by the way, if you go to the uh, the front page of the New York Times now, hopefully it'll still be up tomorrow when the podcast goes out, uh, there is an article about the celebration in Azerbaijan and how uh, the, uh, Azerbaijan has uh, been having a rough time as of late and that the victory really means something to that country and how like excited they are, uh, they are about uh, actually winning Eurovision. Uh, surprisingly, yeah. so in a way that, like you know, even if you don't love their sort of overly manufactured lyrics, don't really make sense. Uh, sappy duet that, like you know, th- you know, th- they're happy about it. They're like legitimately happy about it. I'm sure that they could really use the income that's going to come and and ha- hosting the contest next year and all the tourism that results. So that yeah. you know, I can't I can't begrudge them their victory. Although I am a little confused as to like why certain songs seem to do well and certain songs didn't. I mean, I gave me a crack about being not a safe space to have Eurovision, but like, I don't know, my old cobbler and barber were as airy and like, I'm glad there's something to be happy about. That's for sure. Does, does hosting a Eurovision uh, show tournament, tournament, I guess a, a tournament of champions, does hosting a Eurovision tournament really make money? I've heard it. I've heard it said, and I've heard it argued, argued very plausibly that the Olympics say, tend to actually be money losers for most countries that hold them, just because of the immense bureaucratic nightmare that is yeah, coordinating yeah. the Olympic village. And then, but, uh, the, that's right, there's the huge input cost for it, right? Yeah. Like, Greece Greece had made their pitch for the previous Olympics, you know, uh, as a way of, like, reboosting their economy, and you can see, like, how well that worked. They ended up the equivalent of, like, billions of U.S. dollars in the whole um, from, you know, the Endeavor after it was all said and done. But I, 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 would wonder if, I would wonder if Eurovision is on the same scale because isn't it, it – well, I mean it's smaller because there aren't you know, millions of people traveling there. But there is, there is a tremendous amount of, I guess, media attention and you know, media companies from around Europe have to fly there. So I, I, I don't know. Will people more, more familiar with it than me weigh in? I mean, it seems like, first of all, the thing about the Olympics is that you have to build all the venues, so there's a massive amount of infrastructure. For Eurovision, yeah, all you really need to do one, is get... There's just the one space here, yeah. right? You don't yeah, need you a need to get one space, and, it, and it's, it's unclear. I, I feel like the European Broadcast Union might foot the bill for at least some of that, that you don't necessarily need to pay for all the pyrotechnics as the host country. Um, and I mean, it does seem like a lot of tourism, like, like for this Eurovision, I think they said that the arena, it was a converted soccer uh, stadium. And it's at about 30,000. And I believe they filled it up for not only the finals, but both the semifinals. So that's, you know, like 100. First of all, I don't know. Presumably some of the ticket sales go to the venue or the country. I don't know. It's an interesting question, but I do think it's something that's sought after because I did read for this year that, that when Germany won Eurovision, it wasn't automatic what city it was going to go to there was actually a bidding process for six months uh last year where different cities sort of competed for the right to host eurovision so presumably it's not like a burden but like something that's like an economic or a culture or some sort of boon to your city um so then i'm assuming that 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 um azerbaijan is pretty excited about this 
When people are talking about whether a country does well or poorly economically or monetarily from a given endeavor, there's often this urge to conflate whether the government does well or poorly rather than whether the country itself does well or poorly, right? Like, how do you define what the country is? So I'm whether sure that there are going to be players. Is, yeah. You define it via a pop song, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. how you figure out what the country is. Yeah, if you define a country by like who they vote for in Eurovision, I suppose it's kind of circular. That like we really don't know if these countries actually exist until they give twelve points to something, at which point they come into existence, right? <laughs> it's it's um, like, a You can only define these countries relatively. Like in that moment before Sweden announces its points, Sweden actually doesn't exist as a construction. But no, it's like if, if there are big contracting companies and, and big you know, or even small companies and like you know souvenir companies and, and people who are like making money off of. of the Olympics or Eurovision or even off of like a sports stadium, like those people can make money and, and the government can lose money if the government is like, you know, footing the bill for it. But then from the government's perspective, yes, it looks like it's bad for us, but that's sort of the government, part of the government's job is to conduct public spending in such a way that it like is beneficial to the police. Right. And like, that's kind of a lot of people see that as part of what the government should be doing. It should be doing public works projects that lead to development and improvement in the community and stuff like that. So it doesn't necessarily matter whether the government ends up making a profit off of it or doesn't. I'm not sure. That's sort of a philosophical question. But I think it's an oversimplified. I know Athens in particular was pretty poorly managed. But I mean, in Beijing, you know, that was very, uh, it seems like it was a very, uh, uh, fruitful endeavor in a lot of ways, but it's hard to tell because you can't go through to everybody like how much money did you make. Also, keep in mind how much money would you have made in the same circumstances if the event had not been here. And and Greece's problems, I mean Greece's debt issues and stuff. I mean, yes, the Olympics exacerbated them to an extent, yeah, yeah, but you no, get the it, sense that it was kind of a systemic problem that, yeah, that would have happened. Folly, whether you had it, it, yeah. it, it's folly to think that the Olympics would have pulled Greece out of their crippling uh, recession, but. But I, th- I think if you just if you merely looked at like you know the input expenditure and the output profits on mass in like both the public and the private sectors in Greece, um, like you know they were they were showing net losses uh, in both sides. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. I mean, there's a lot of debate here around like when you want to set up a sports stadium, does it really do all the things that you say that it's going to do? Uh, and that works the same thing for arts institutions, really any sort of publicly supported institution, and they all affect the communities in in different ways. I mean. When you're playing SimCity, I think that that tends to simplify it a little bit more. But, um, but yeah, is it worth it to finance a stadium? Right? A lot of the times it isn't. But people need to do it, it partially even defensively because you don't want your team to leave for another, you know, another country or another city. Like That might be a problem, too. Right? Like It might not be just, oh, I make X money if I, you know, X dollars if I build a new stadium for my team. But if my team leaves for another city, then I lose a lot. So then they sort of have me by the, by the balls and they can make me do whatever I want. Um, right? So that's like another kind of problem with these sort of situations, although not really with Eurovision. So it might be really tough if they, if Azerbaijan tries to build up around Eurovision, it's only going to last to be there for like a week or two, right? And then it's going to be gone. Um, I mean, the big problem with Azerbaijan is that a lot of the country is pretty conservative Muslims. I don't know if they're going to have a good time with all these uh, Western European and Central European gay people in their, in their capital city. That might be a problem. But, um, you know, we'll see how that works out. Um, uh, over, over, over the course of next year, I suppose. That's good. Stay tuned for news of gay people in Azerbaijan. <laughs> Stay tuned to Overthinking. <laughs> your, your, 
<laughs> one stop source on the web for news of the Bacchanal and Baku. For... <laughs> the Bacchanal in Baku. Well, this is uh, this has been uh, in place of a post to wrap up the Eurovision finals. So, uh, if you have anything to say about Eurovision, you can um, uh, leave it in the comments here in our this our sort of wrap up post in lieu of in lieu of that. Uh, if you have anything to say for an, uh, a listener feedback episode of the Overthinking It podcast, I don't know, guys. What do you think? Can we do a listener feedback episode next week? Maybe. I mean, can we or will we? Well. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with can we and uh, and work on from there. It actually, it, no, my answer is no for both. <laughs> <laughs> in, in an infinite universe, all things are possible. Yeah, at a certain temperature, quantum physics predicts that we've already done a listener feedback. <laughs> I think it's entirely determined by the quality of the listener feedback, right? So if there's not one, you really have no one to blame but yourself, listener. That's right. <laughs> Sorry. Have, we, have we entered the bloated uh, hate our own audience? get drunk in a dark room stage of our popularity no no are, are we, love we, our no. Are we the, jim morrisoning it yet it's the other wait wait, the, wait are those distinct stages so we can't be getting drunk in dark rooms yet uh, uh do we own the room if, if we're borrowing it from someone else then okay all right that's, that's i mean even i'm not a drink in my hotel room oh no yeah it's a problem all right just not alone pete you're on vacation no we love our <laughs> so, audience so this, this podcast started with Belinky stoned in a dark room by himself listening to Zyrika, and uh, we've come full circle, really. <laughs> Zyrika, though, like, you can't listen to Zyrika by yourself, because it's really, if you put the four... Um, yeah, I guess you're CD right. Players, it would be very you difficult. You can't reach the play buttons on four CD players you know, simultaneously. I mean, even if you, like, put I'm the sure four boomboxes... I'm, I'm positive Edison has some, like, crazy contraption that will let you do this. Like a remote control? For <laughs> Quiet, you. You have to press the four buttons on four remote controls simultaneously. Yeah. Like maybe like a toe. A toe could help. <laughs> if only I had those. <laughs> Um, yeah, so uh, so this podcast began with Belinky alone in his apartment, lying spread eagled on the floor, one one limb pointing out to each corner, uh, where, where a finger or toe hovered daintily above the play button on a uh, you know on an old style boombox. Don't see a lot of boomboxes anymore, do you? I mean, every time I close my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> not not real world. No, they're called they call them iPods now, Matt. <laughs> they, they, uh, uh, it's a new thing that the kids are into. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, it's it's funny. Like you can't imagine do the right thing. You can't imagine um, what was his name, Radio Rakim, right? Uh, like holding a big iPod. You know, his crime no, was that he, played, he <laughs> his crime was that he played his iPod too loud. You know, uh, we're all alone together, bowling alone. The wisdom of crowds, blink. Outliers, 10,000 hours. Oh, he's entered a loop again. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody reboot, rather. Well, do do the right thing would be very different in today's society where everybody can compartmentalize their own content, right? Because, like, do the right thing is about different people being forced to to live in the same area where they don't get along. But, like, if they can all listen to their own music on their iPods and, and text each other and, like, go on their sort of Facebook feeds, which are filtered, you know, without their awareness to give them only things that they want to see and everything is targeted, then you don't have the kind of, um, kind of furious energy that builds up in that kind of scenario. 
situation. Like the social, the social meshing, the social friction isn't there and do the right thing would never happen. I, I so. like that my Facebook feed is filtered. I mean, I, I guess you can kind of switch it off. The, you can switch to the most recent feed. But the, the thing it projects that, that are your favorites are not based on uh, your self-reporting what your favorites are. You know, it's, it's kind of like uh, it's, it's the magazine subscription problem. You know what I mean? You have, to, you have to make a positive action to subscribe to a magazine. And so I have sitting in front of me, you know, uh, stacks of the New Yorker, the Atlantic, the London Review of Books, the New York Review of Books, Poetry Magazine that are totally going unread. And I'm sure if I subscribe to Maxim or something like that, uh, I'd, you know, get through the issue the day it came. Um, yes, hypothetically, if you were to subscribe <laughs> to Maxim. I, I actually don't. If you want to send the, uh, if you want to send overthinkingit.com, something we'll actually <laughs> use, you could enter a gift subscription to Maxim in our name. Um, the, Matt, uh, so long as you're getting through highlights every week, you're, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's found literally hundreds of things that are different between pictures, people. <laughs> Literally, literally, literally hundreds. hundreds. Um, but the the Facebook feed is filtered based on what you have actually clicked on. You know what I mean? So like, uh, so like your sister's friends, right? I don't, I don't actually have a sister, but I, I'm imagining. This is why I don't have Facebook. <laughs> I'm imagining. Um, yeah, how's the how's the Facebook list uh, life going, Pete? Oh, it's great. I don't miss it even a little bit. The only times I ever miss Facebook are when my family gets together, and I wish that I had more pictures. But um, there are other things I can do for that. But yeah, no, I mean, I hear about all this creepy, crazy stuff that's going into Facebook and it's social engineering. And I'm like, oh, glad I'm not part of that anymore. Yep. Uh, I'm on the Twitters. You know, you can follow me at Finzelian. But uh, yeah, not on the Facebook. So let's, let's, let's do a round of this. I, you know, I, just while we close, let's do a round of, uh, of self pimping. So uh, Fenzel is on the Twitters at Finzelian. Any, anywhere else you want people to find you? I mean, other than overthinking it, obviously. Well, you can come see my shows at Improv Boston in Central Square in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, and sometimes I travel to improv festivals up and down the East Coast, and, uh, and that's exciting stuff. So, yeah, so come, come, to, come, see, come see a show in, uh, in Boston or look us up at heraldnight.com, uh, where we've got a bunch of uh, content there, too, for our, for our Thursday night shows. Belinky, quick self-pimp? Um, I don't know. I'm just a nice guy. If you see me around, talk to me. You know, say hi. I'm friendly. I don't bite. Uh, you know, and just ask me about my kid. I got pictures. <laughs> uh, McNeil, self pimp. Wow, <laughs> Sorry. That's or, that guy does that guy does absolutely terrible PR. <laughs> it's true. No, you can, you can find my website at uh, www.mrskin.com. Um, <laughs> it's true. It's it's actually mrskin.com, right? It's a horrible domain misnomer. It's like the worst genealogy site. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's all. It's like you know. And which branch of my family did? Uh, this actress show her tits. <laughs> oh. <laughs> John Parrish, self-pimp? Yeah, you can find me on, on Twitter at Parrish, that's the same as my last name, or on my blog, periscopedepth.com. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Schechner? Uh, you can find my papers using PubMed. Uh, I publish in Science. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> wow, geez. You don't mean to everybody about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Pete. Pete's only in PNAS. 
But for what it's worth, Pete will only publish in journals that also uh, double as porn magazine titles. <laughs> uh, and I'm on the Twitters at mrather, and uh, my personal website is matthewrather.com. Um, but uh, the website that we all are on, the best uh, website, is uh, www.overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It I said it in Turkish. You know, Yaz has these stories because she she grew up in Turkey when there were like frequent military coups, right? And like whenever whenever a military coup would happen, you know, uh, yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. so like uh, whenever there'd be a coup, uh, they'd lose like the television feed, and everybody's on these like rabbit ear antennae televisions, right? And so like for a while, um, several points during her youth, the only thing they could get was Azerbaijani TV. So that's like all I know about Azerbaijan as a, as a culture is like what my wife has told me about what their TV was like when she was growing up. And so I'm like, you know, what's Azerbaijani TV look like? You know, what's it like? And and, and her response, she gets this really weird look on her face that's just, um, it's like a mixture of like confusion and terror. You know, she's just like, <laughs> I don't know, but I don't want to know. <laughs> and then she quickly changes the subject. <laughs> So, yeah, yeah, sure, bye, Sean.